You say you wanna be my leader. I think you wanna be my God. You say you wanna side of the right. I say I'm gonna hang with the wrong. There's truth for the filthers. There's lies of the law. I don't give a fuck about power. I pluck an eye out of pyramid. Cut an ear from a mouse hat. Go Van Gogh on a house rat. Find another mind in the flower. Motherfucker, I'm really not hearing it. This is Transmission 9 of the Cosmic Anthropology Broadcast System. From the Hexiot to Ethereum and beyond with Vinay Gupta. Really short intro, because I have a horrible head cold, sorry. It's winter here. The main thing is to know that this was recorded before the DAO exchange blow-up that put Ethereum in the news. Also, beyond that, and you know, um, if you don't know what Ethereum is, you can listen to video describe it. More importantly, we talk a lot about both the infrastructure that can allow a path through the collapse, as I like to phrase it, where, uh, especially in light of the essay I wrote after this podcast, uh, my Prison Planet piece, which you can find on the Daily Grail, a world, building a better world, building out the infrastructure for a better world, where we're beset by climate chaos. Also, if you're listening to this, Brexit just happened, listening to this in the future, and who knows how that actually plays out, we have no idea, but it kind of reinforces the other big discussion point, which is the failings of the modern political project, and the distressing scenario where the only thing engaging with the present, realistically, is those goddamn neo-reactionaries. Which is why I spend hours on this podcast and other things trying to talk to people to find the pieces to build something. And I hope you get something out of this. I'll play us out, RTJ. It's, uh, it's London, it's about 11am, it's Tuesday morning, and it's slightly grey. Everything is very ordinary. <laughs> it's much the same here, mate. <laughs> Different 11pm there, though, right? What is it, 3 in the morning your time? No. No, it's like 8pm. 8, 8 okay, got it, got it. Okay, so um, tell me what we're doing. So... I've called you here for a very specific reason, which is to build, to talk about how we build a, well, I, I, I think that actually is like a, like a shadow civilization, but um, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So the focus is on, as the title of the podcast is, from looking at your work from the Hexia to Ethereum, mm-hmm. anything in between. And then beyond. Oh, there's all kinds of stuff in between. My God, there's a lot of crap in there. So one of the great lessons of my life is that if you keep failing, 
uh, your skill set goes broader and broader and broader and broader because you fail and then you do something else and you just acquire more and more skills. Uh, and I think this is quite often why you get people that have basically bimbled around like almost their entire lives and then suddenly it all comes together in some huge breakthrough. It's because every time you screw up and you move on to the next thing, you acquire more diversity and more perspective and more insight and eventually that process automatically leads to breakthrough. And I sort of feel that I'm like maybe two careers short of total world domination. Um, so, you know, now we're getting sort of heavily into the tech stuff again. All I really need to do is tick off media and then politics and we're done. Because I've done basically everything else. Right? Right. Yeah. Hmm. Dr. Gupta's evil master plan. So, um... I mean, do you want to start with the hex yard? We could kind of work out in ever-widening circles from there. I mean, is that where that sort of trajectory began for you? Um, yeah, I mean, to be honest, uh, one of the things it's hard to communicate about with the hex yard is that I never had any interest or any care for refugee issues at all until after I'd invented the damn thing. You know, uh, I spent my 90s, you know, basically running around doing a ton of meditation as a very typical kind of self-involved New Ager with strong Hindu overtones. And then after that, you know, I went to Rocky Mountain Institute, began to work on environmental stuff but at a very kind of technical level. I was uh, editing a book on renewable energy economics called Small is Profitable. And then, you know, after I invented the Hexer, it was like, oh, okay, I am actually responsible now because I have gone from a position of not having the power to help to having the power to help, I'm now responsible for helping. So it's one of these things where developing the capability to do something then sort of forced me into a position where I then had to do something. Uh, and I think it's a measure of how seriously I took that responsibility that I then put my next 15 years into it uh, for you know very carefully designed zero financial return. I knew that the most effective way of pushing the project was not going to be starting a company because it takes you, you know, you get three years of funding, you sell 5,000 units, and you wind up in exactly the same position as all the other little shelter manufacturers, which is nowhere. Um, or the alternative was to start a charity, and you've got, again, the same problem that you can't get scale, and if you're a charity, none of the other charities will use your work. So that left me with the kind of visionary option, because, you know, remember, 2002, 2003, there was no open hardware movement, there was barely open source. Um, and, you know, out of that came this idea of doing the thing as open hardware. So in many ways, it's potentially the first consciously open hardware project. I mean, it can't actually be the first, but it's certainly very early. And the deployment model was then that I was expecting a paradigm shift that it was going to take 15 years for people to fundamentally change their mind about how we approach the refugee problem. Um, and I put, picked the number 15 years from the work of a guy called Thomas Kuhn in a book called Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And Kuhn was very clear that it takes 15 years for people to change their mind, essentially because you're waiting for a generational rollover. You know, the old guys have to die and the new guys have to take over before you get structural power shifts inside of the big organizations, which are the things that actually take care of business. Um, and that's been the trajectory of the last 15 years. It's been this very slow process of pushing the idea further and further and further, developing the technology broader and broader and broader, getting a critical mass. Uh, somebody on the internet 
did a count of hexahertz uh, Burning Man 2015 from satellite data. 2,200 units. Wow. Yeah, that's roughly a bill, uh, a million dollars spent for Burning Man. It's probably a little over a million dollars, somewhere between 1 million, 1.3 million. Um, and of course, many of those u- units are reusable, so it's not like they are going out and spending another million dollars every year, but the total volume of capital on the playa in the form of hexahertz is about $1.3 million. So what does happen to the hexahertz after Burning Man? You know, they just chuck them back in storage. Uh, and there are some people who are apparently living in them year round on little communes dotted around out there, but for the most part, they just go straight back in boxes. And is that still the main place they use? Oh yeah, very much so. I mean, the the charities are basically bastards. You know, I spent a lot of time working with the charities, and the bottom line is that making sure that their political situation is not compromised by leaving permanent, highly functional cities everywhere that there was a crisis is their primary objective, right? They would much rather put people in tents which will rot in the sunlight in six months to a year and then dissolve, leaving no trace uh, that the charity had ever been there than build stuff which has any degree of permanence and which is then going to become a political issue later on. And from my perspective, if you're on the side of the refugees rather than on the side of the states or your funders, what you would attempt to do is build them the highest quality new life, given that they're going to be in the refugee camp 10, 20, 30 years on average. Um, but if you are not serious about the refugees, but you are serious about keeping your funding and keeping the governments happy, then you have to go in and do this extremely temporary stuff, because nobody actually wants the status quo changed. Everybody wants the absolutely minimal intervention. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Um, so there's been, like, I know a lot of uh, the Syrian refugees have ended up... Has there been any use of them over there? Or? Not yet, no. Medicine Sans Frontiers has gotten desperate enough to start building plywood sheds in Dunkirk. And obviously around the Arab world, you're seeing these very, very serious refugee camps where they're building out essentially metal sheds on a big scale. I think Jordan has been particularly good at that. So the move towards hard sheltering is coming. They're beginning to look at this seriously as we're just building buildings. Uh, once you make that decision, the hexier is probably the cheapest imaginable way of doing it. So there's a decent chance that it will eventually just filter into that process. But this is what I mean by the kind of 15 years for a paradigm change thing. That it really is a process of people fundamentally reassessing what a refugee is and where they fit into the world before they can get to something as simple as just changing the bloody shelter option. Mm. But it seems like there's going to be only more applications for these. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I started planning, the idea was to try and figure out a reasonable solution to 150 million climate refugees, which would roughly triple the total number of refugees in the world. And, you know, once you start doing that analysis, you're going to have entire nations on the move. Then you kind of have to go backwards and figure out, well, you know, what do you need to keep people alive other than shelter? Okay, we can build the houses, but, you know, what about water? What about food? Uh, If they're going to have any kind of self-organizing structures, you need telecommunications. And, you know, you sort of basically build up a model of how to build temporary countries, which is basically what you would expect Hexera cities to turn into. Sure seems to be the trip the uh well I think Jordan it's like a third of the population is now refugees. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are just an awful lot of people on the move here. You know, very, very, very large numbers of people who are mobile and are not really likely to stop being mobile. You know, this is this is likely to be the situation for a long time. Unfortunately, so. Um, can I can I just rewind slightly? The yeah, um, sure. the Rocky Mountain Institute. What? Mm-hmm. How did they fit into the picture? Oh, so um, after nine eleven, I got a job at Rocky Mountain Institute. And basically, I spent my time up there um, editing energy policy books. Just really, really simple. And are they sort of a remnant of that 60s counterculture sort of commune deal? Or or what are they? No, not at all. Not at all. Okay. Um, No, not at all. Not at all. Um, So they're up in Colorado. They're about, uh, I don't know, five miles from Aspen. And they are the basically last living incubator of Buckminster Fuller's vision. Right. So Amory Levins, I believe, worked pretty closely with Bucky. One of the last domes that Bucky built is up there, and it's an astonishing structure. Oh my god, it's amazing. Um, So it's basically made of large pentagons and little triangles, and it's made of you know sort of six inch wide pieces of timber that are weaved in and out of each other, so everything is resting on top of everything else. So it's kind of like a reciprocal roof, but it's a reciprocal roof in the form of a geodesic dome, because Bucky figured out the correct sequencing of over and under and over and under, so that these pieces of wood would go just weave in and out of each other to form the dome structure, and it is amazing. It's a really clever thing. Um, and Rocky Mountain Institute is basically like a finishing school for American environmentalists. The pace is so fast up there that people tend to burn out, and literally half of the environmentalists in America went up to Rocky Mountain Institute at some point, lasted two, three, four, five years, however long they could last, absorbed an entirely new world model, and then they returned to civilization, vastly enriched by the process. Even if it takes them a couple of years to get over the burnout. It's about 70 people, I mean, sometimes more, sometimes less, and they're extremely hardline political realists. So they accept market-based solutions are not ideal, but they're the best that we can actually hope for. Uh, They work very closely with big institutions like Walmart and the government, and their vision is simply, you know, we don't need social change if we get the engineering right. So you can't imagine an environmental outfit that's further away from your hippie ideals. Yeah. Yeah, hard science environmentalism. Yeah, I, I really like the sound of that. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're great people. The, the intellectual output is astonishing, typically 10, 20, 30 years in the future. Um, they were basically designing Teslas in the early 1990s, maybe mid-1990s. They designed a thing called the Hypercar, which is basically a carbon fibre shell uh, with a sort of, you know, f- uh, hydrogen fuel cell and uh, electric motors in each wheel, and then a kind of aviation-style avionics package to do the control. And the closest thing we have to that today is Tesla. And they were incredibly early on all that stuff. Yeah, 1994, Hypercar Center, uh, let me just read you this. Uh, to help prove its technical feasibility of commercial reality, concept placed in the public domain to maximize competition, capturing market and manufacturing advantages, the Hypercar would be a hybrid electric hydrogen fuel family vehicle that had only a few parts, made of lightweight carbon using existing technologies, weighing half what a normal car would weigh, getting the equivalent of 300 to the gallon. 
you know, they really seriously did, you know, incredibly early visionary engineering, which laid the framework for what became all the other uh, electric car efforts that followed. Mm. So they're big on the whole, if we can just engineer our way out of it, the politics sort of solve themselves. Is, is that what you're saying? That's entirely the Buckminster Fuller approach. Mm. He basically says that politics is how we divide up scarcity, and if you don't have scarcity, you don't need politics. Sounds like a great plan to me. Well, it's it's nice work if you could get it. Making it work is the hard part. Actually getting rid of scarcity turns out to be far harder than we expect, because we keep increasing our demands to recreate roughly the same social structure regardless of our level of material production. Hmm. You know, it didn't used to be normal for people to carry around recording studios in their shoulder bags. Right? And now I feel, you know, strangely naked if I'm at, if I'm doing any kind of international travel and I don't have a video production studio with me, I feel a little weird. Right? Five years ago that would have been questionable, ten years ago it would have been impossible, now it's become the new need. So, you know, any kind of production-based approach is going to have to deal with the fact that we have this kind of hedonic treadmill where we continue to increase our demands and our desires in strict keeping with whatever our potentials are. What we want is the best available, and we will always increase that to get whatever the best available is. Hmm. It's definitely true. Yeah, it's a right bastard, to be honest. Well... Yeah, it is. <laughs> well, that's that's definitely you've explained the heck to you. Um, uh, what? Are, oh, I, I was just gonna. Sorry, I was just gonna make a comment. Um, I saw NASA as uh, gonna build little, or the, the the you know the NASA future projects thing they have. Yeah, they're yeah. using tensegrity to spin out little habitats in theory. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I mean, it is the way that you would do, you know, anything that's right at the edge of human potential. You're going to wind up using tensegrity because it's the best available way of get, turning stuff into structure. Hmm. So you'll have, uh, you know, most people in refugee camps and the elite in <laughs> all thanks to Fuller. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, Fuller is an enormous influence on the world. You know, I think in the long run, at the kind of 200, 300 year mark, his influence will be seen as being on a par with John Dee's. With, sorry, with who? John Dee. Oh, John Dee, yeah, for sure. Jesus, yeah. Let's talk about John Dee for two hours. He's amazing. Ah, uh, the, the, the great fourth monotheist prophet, right? Muhammad, you know, Christ, uh, you know, we'll work them in order, right? Uh, Abraham, Christ, Muhammad, John D. He's the fourth monotheist prophet. I'm down with that, for sure. Um, <laughs> the secret prophet. What did I, I heard you say something, and we're just going to go off the map now, um, that the world would be, the 20th century would have turned out differently if Jack Parsons and Gandhi had lived. Yes, I mean, there's a series of assassinations which basically deliver us the world that we have now. Uh, John, uh, you know, Jack Parsons, Gandhi, uh, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, uh, there are a couple of others. Um, 
And that set of assassinations basically leaves us with a decapitated leadership for global transformation. Gandhi would have turned 100 in 1968. So imagine what the reaction of Gandhi would have been to mutually assured destruction in the nuclear arms race between the US and the USSR. You know, he would have been the guy coordinating the global protests against the nuclearization of the world. And I think that Gandhi would have been an unstoppable force in that position. Mm-hmm. But he gets shot. Parsons was assassinated. I thought he, he died an accident um, it very much depends who you ask um so th- the on-running question is whether jack parsons was simply pushed into an untenable position by political forces and then had an accident which is the least machiavellian model of it through to various magical explanations about how well you know he got nuked by so and so and then it turned into the explosion because he was you know just essentially cursed uh, if you believe in that kind of thing, I think it's pretty questionable in that case. Uh, uh, right the way through to the thing was actually he was assassinated by the US government because he was selling rocket stuff to the Israelis. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is where Parsons goes wrong. Parsons cuts a deal with the Israeli government and shows them a bunch of classified stuff, uh, hoping to get a job as basically Israel's head of rocketry, and it all goes horribly wrong. That I had not heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, 61, 60, uh, 51, 52, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, he was, I mean, he was accused of espionage. And whether they were just trying to get rid of him because he was seen as being a, you know, weird black magician, or whether he was actually seriously getting pushed into, you know, some kind of weird collaboration because of his political views, you know, I don't really know exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. But that is that is the accusations that were made, and everything gets a little weird. Mm. Yeah, it's worth a look. Worth a look. You would be surprised. Oh, I, I uh, absolutely will. Um, the only thing I'd heard was that he he like testified against a corrupt cop or something. That was the most sinister thing I'd heard so far. Uh, let's see. Uh... Yeah, here we are. Rosenfeld offered Parsons a job with the Israeli rocket program and hard introduced technical reports for them. In 1950, the Red intensified. Parsons decided to migrate to Israel to pursue Rosenfeld's offer, but a Hughes secretary who Parsons had asked for help reported him to the FBI and accused him of espionage and theft of classified company documents. And that was basically where Parsons' decline begins. The whole thing spirals down from there. You know, I mean, McCarthyism was a brutal, brutal force in America, and nobody really trusted the Israelis at that point. Hmm. Hmm. He needed to uh, study his John Dee some more on espionage. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you know, what we have is a situation where, you know, the the course of the world changes direction in a very fast, very hard way after World War Two. And all the people that would have been the pivots in moving the world in the other direction basically snap off like bolts. What happens is that the story of the world changes direction and all of the people that are attempting to hold the other story in reality break. Mm. This is why by the mid-1980s, the vast majority of the senior spiritual leadership of the hippie movement are completely destroyed. About a third of them die, the rest are left alcoholic or hooked on heroin 
or they'd force themselves back into normal lives and, you know, just live out the rest of their days as middle-class soccer moms. That's the lucky ones. The energy changes, the course of the world changes, the people that are stuck in the other future, generally speaking, either break or die. The only reason that I'm still alive is ruthless, constant, continual self-destruction, because it's the only thing that allows me to continue to adapt to history as it is, rather than becoming a relic on a dead branch of the future. That sounds unpleasant. Well, I mean, it's the typical fate of visionary leadership. The visionary leadership hold out a path towards the future. If you're on a branch that the future does not take, you lose everything. And frequently people die. Mm. And this is a really common pattern once you learn to see it. No, definitely. Um, okay, let's just keep going with that for a little bit and then we'll work our way back. Um, sure, so sure. What, do, what do you make of the guys like Stuart Brand and Kevin Kelly then? Um, they more or less defined what happened to the future. You know, they're wealthy, powerful old men who laid out an ideology which has become perceived to be normal reality. Yeah. What Brit victory is there for an old bastard? Pretty much. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's what winning looks like. Winning looks like you're an old man, you get to do what you like, you enjoy your retirement if you have one, and maybe you just keep working straight through, and everybody in the world knows your name and knows your opinions. You're the old man that people listen to, rather than the old man that they ignore and pretend no longer exists because he's become an embarrassment. Mm. Those guys have done all right. Under the circumstances, I think we are very much better for the leadership than we'd be without it. Howard Rheingold is another one like that. Oh, right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I uh, devoured his book on VR in high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, less known but equally important is a guy called Cliff Figolo. Mm-hmm. And Cliff was one of the uh, sort of kingpins of a place called The Farm in Tennessee, which is where they laid the foundation for what became the Hexier, but they also laid the foundation for what became the whole of internet culture. You know, the, all the guys that basically brought their hippie ideals to the well in the mid-1980s came from The Farm. And what you think of as cyber culture is basically just farm culture scaled onto the internet. Hmm. You know about The Farm, right? Gaskin's Farm? No. Keep, oh, keep right. things. So, 1971-1972, an American sort of post-Christian spiritual teacher called Stephen Gaskin takes the entire sort of cream of the Haight-Ashbury scene, loads them into school buses and takes them across country to go and buy some land. Uh, it's somewhere, it's something like 75 or 200 school buses, and they basically drive across America looking for a place to settle down and start a farm. Now, the hippies are extremely badly misunderstood because people don't understand that the hippies were actually survivalists. The whole back-to-the-land movement was on the assumption that the nuclear war was inevitable and they were hoping to survive and ride it out afterwards. But the, the enormous desire to go back to the land wasn't just some kind of visionary trip about how great it was to be a farmer. They were convinced that the system was going to go down in hellfire and flame and everything around them pointed to that as evidence. You know, if you've just lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis, you'll watch the escalating tensions in the Cold War, you get to a point where you're pretty sure that this is going to go off, and your job is to survive. 
that kind of hard-nosed political vision that was inside of the hippie movement has been almost entirely forgotten because they've been characterised as being these useless flower children rather than being a group of adults that wanted to escape society because of its mass murder tendency. You're in the middle of the Vietnam War, people are being drafted, the nuclear rhetoric from both sides is unbelievably off the hook, and everybody comes to the assumption that it's going to go down and they need to get the hell out of town. You grow your hair out, you wear some funny clothes, and you find some friends, and once you've got a critical mass, you leave. So they're coming out of San Francisco with that kind of mindset. They wind up settling in Tennessee about a hundred an hour and a half, maybe, south of Nashville in a place called Summertown, and the local Amish teach them how to farm and they just about don't starve. The place runs for about one generation, then collapses because they didn't get proper financial controls in place. Um, they eventually die for the lack of maybe a million dollars to cover their medical bills. Um, because they'd been going to the hospitals uh, for anything that they couldn't treat locally and the expenses gradually accumulated. And at the end of that process, they've established this entire new way of looking at the world and culture and so on, and then those people scatter all over the world and many of them do really interesting things. Yeah, it's one of the secret incubators of civilization. There's a guy called Albert Bates who is on Twitter as at Peak Surfer. Mm-hmm. Bates asked me a question in 95 which was basically Vinay, could you figure out how to make a geodesic dome out of 4x8 sheet with no waste and you know that's the question that became the hexier I spent 6 months on it at the time and couldn't figure out how to do it because I couldn't switch gear from spherical trigonometry to uh, concave tiling you just needed a different branch of math to solve the problem um, and I just couldn't figure out how to switch gear. I was still stuck inside a forward paradigm. But all of that, you know, the perception that there was a way to do it actually goes back to Albert Bates. You know, he was the guy that set my feet on that path, and it took me 15 years until we had a geodesic dome of any real scale, you know, the 45-square-metre quad dome that Edmund Harris created. It wasn't, you know, 15 years later, we finally fixed the problem. And I like to joke that if the hippies had had the hexier domes, they would have won, and I think that's probably still true. Mm-hmm. You know, the ability to mass produce large houses for a few thousand dollars a unit without much skill and without many tools, that's still a civilization changing technology. Once the fire starts, it will burn very hot and for a really long time. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, that's fascinating about the farm. Um, so. Obviously, there's a link between that and the Rocky Mountain Institute, at least thematically. Um, yeah, absolutely. Where do you see, apart from that, do you think there's an equivalent sort of effort being made to create a new, better way of living, you know, civilization? Um, not that has any realistic chance of success, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in a position where basically the left and the Greens are unbelievably, completely, entirely toxic and useless. Right? I mean, literally, if there is one thing that I could do right now to accelerate the course of human evolution, it would be to completely abandon all existing positions on the left and among the Greens. They've completely failed to understand what's happening. They've completely failed to face reality. And as a result, all that they are is that they're in the way and they need to be bulldozed. Do you think that's just an infection of neoliberalism that people just can't no. escape? No. 
No, it's not only neoliberalism, it's that they never faced the utter failure of the communist project. Um. Right? Once you accept that top-down societies with strong government resource control uh, you know, turn into genocide states, you've got to understand right, that in the 20th century, roughly 10 times as many people are killed by murder bureaucracies inside of their own countries that are killed in wars. Yeah. It's the biggest, right? It's, you know, number one killer is smallpox, which gets about 500 million. Number two killer is death camps. Yeah. And, and everybody that tries hardcore socialism winds up with death camps. Mm. There are no alternatives. It always happens. So rather than people turning around and saying, look, Marx is fatally flawed. Every time we run that software, 100 million people die. We're not doing that anymore. What happens is you wind up with this kind of shit version of, well, you know, Stalin wasn't really a Marxist. Yeah, bullshit, right? Once it is fully taken on board that Marxism equals genocide, you can then go back and say, okay, well, if we can't have an egalitarian society based on Marxist principles, what could we do instead? You see? Mm. nobody will ask the question because everybody wants to pretend that Marx had something to say he did, but what he said was kill each other in my name it's not good it's not going to be good, it's never going to be good burn it to the ground right? similarly the green movement is based on this kind of pre-tech agricultural utopian model which is kind of sort of something that springs out of the side of the 60s that turns out to not be sustainable we don't have enough agricultural land for 7 billion people to be one-acre farmers. It's just not going to work, right? Mm. We need a super high-tech green with unbelievable efficient resource utilization like you get in the modern solar panel industry. We need a high-tech green where you've got things like Dutch model, super intensive agriculture where tiny amounts of land produce enormous rivers of food, right? But this idea that things which are like we did them 500 years ago are in some way more ecologically sound than what we're doing today is insane. It is just not that way. You run the numbers, the, the lowest carbon emissions in America are for New Yorkers. The highest are for people in Montana. Mm-hmm. Right? Montana, all we've got out here is nature, and we tame nature using diesel. New York, we live in an enormous hive and we keep each other warm in winter because we share our heat. You know? Everything is close enough together that you just walk everywhere. So in that sort of context, if you actually start building out something that looks like a green ideology that isn't led by emotion and the kind of vision of back-to-the-landism, but is actually based on a technical analysis of what constitutes planetary and human survival, not as uh, opposite priorities, but as a single unified priority, what you wind up with is this idea that what you need are extremely ecologically efficient urban centers, which contain the vast majority of the population. Mm. The megacity is what the green civilization looks like. Nobody's willing to touch it with a barge pole because the hippie vision is more important to them than actual human survival. Nobody is interested in history and nobody is interested in numbers. Everybody wants their emotions to tell them what is real, and their emotions say communism and back to the land. Their emotions are wrong. Mm. The human intuition about what the future ought to look like turns out to be horseshit, and it has absolutely no 
realistic chance of being implemented in a way that does actually produce a civilization that works. You see what I'm saying? Oh, I, I, yeah, hundred um, percent. Right. And I mean the um, the what's implied, what's implicit there is at current population levels, right? No, it's not even about population levels. It's just that people are stupid. They're really, really stupid. They keep going back to the same old broken models over and over and over again, rather than using their heads. Mm. Right? We keep talking about heart-led civilization and open-heartedness and you know all of this kind of stuff, and it's just poison. Right? I cannot stress this too strongly. The situation is far too severe for a heart-led approach to work. What people want emotionally is based on millions of years of primate genetic programming. Their heart feels good when they're in a condition which would have resulted in good reproductive conditions for Australopithecus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That's where your emotions evolved. And if you follow your emotions in the modern world, what you get is unbelievable endless stores where there is nothing but handbag shopping. The entire world has been turned into a simulator of foraging activity where people go outside of their homes, forage around at the mall, which is basically a jungle for consumer goods. You bring a bunch of stuff back home, you open it up, you play with it, you throw it away. All that we're doing is replicating foraging behavior. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with you about that assessment at all. Pretty right. So, you know, what you need to basically take on fully is that until we start thinking backwards from, okay, one world's worth of resources, 1,000 kilograms of carbon each, 5.5 kilograms of copper as your total lifetime allocation, mm -hmm. until you start working backwards from those kind of numbers, as Lester Brown does in Plan B, no political proposal means anything. Any political proposal that does not come with a carbon budget, with an energy budget, with a natural materials budget, is not a political proposal. It's a fucking pipe dream. Destroy everything. Literally, destroy everything. None of it is working. There is no plan because the people that want political transformation will not bring spreadsheets. It is not only that the result is wrong, it is that the method is wrong, right? It's not just that the plans are not workable, it's that they're not even plans because they don't come with budgets, mm. right? Not just an error of result, an error of method. Mm -hmm. And this is what we're stuck in, right? We need a total ideological iconoclasm before we can begin to build new political ideologies that actually reflect human survival rather than this awful fucking bullshit that we're trapped in because of Marx and the Green Movement. Because the objectives are correct, right? The objectives are fully correct. Everybody should be fed and we shouldn't destroy the world, but the existing ideological machinery to meet those goals must be burned. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna strongly agree with you. Um, <laughs> it's just bleak assessment. Um, no, not at all. That's a hopeful assessment. The bleak assessment is that it might it might work if we continue to turn the little knobs some more. You know, the idea that you know, well, we we just keep being beaten by the man because you know, like you know, they're too powerful and stuff. That is the bleak assessment. 
The accurate assessment is we totally fucked it up because we refused to learn from history or from science. And as a result, we have no realistic proposal at which point society turns its back on us. Mm. That's why we can't get any traction on the left or from the green movement because society looks at it and it's just like, you guys are jokers, fuck off. Um, so, did you say, was it Lester Brown's Plan B? Is that what you just said? Plan B. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a best attempt to produce uh, an engineering strategy and a social strategy to some degree for living inside of the world's actual resource consumption base. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you don't have to necessarily agree with his model, but I think that his method is what all political proposals should look like in future. Mm. Yeah, I just can't help listening to you and then my my mind is looking at Hillary versus Trump and we've yeah, got an election yeah. going on here as well where you bet so much bet. better. But I mean, you know, you get this because the left have fucked it up. Mm. I, I don't even know what, what, what the left is anymore, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. Neither does the left, right? Once you accept that the Soviet Union is gone, the left is no longer the part of your society that is sympathetic to the Soviet Union. Mm. And, you know, do you know about the whole split between um, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and Arthur Kostler and, you know, all those guys around the Soviet Union? That's I can't really say that I do. Trump history. Yeah, so... Our, uh, Oh, I'm trying to remember Camus. Albert uh, Camus and Sartre wind up on opposite sides of whether or not the Soviet Union is a good thing or a bad thing, because they're all socialists. The question is: Is the Soviet Union good or bad for socialism? Is it actually socialism, or you know exactly what is going on? And there's a huge set of political schisms inside of the French left, with Sartre going in one direction, Camus going in the other. Because they're all socialists. The question is, is the Soviet Union good or bad for socialism? Is it actually socialism? Or, you know, exactly what is going on? And there's a huge set of political schisms inside of the French left, with Sartre going in one direction, Camus going in the other. Um, and, you know, it's really worth going back and looking at those... Uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the book. One of them wrote a book which was basically a total condemnation of the Soviet Union... And, I mean, it was an enormous political step for the French left to begin to say, actually, the Soviets are wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, these were, it was a very different time. We don't really understand how the world looked back then. And it's really important to go back and dig for it, because the version that we have of history is nothing like what actually happened. The sort of mainstream re-narration of World War Two is total nonsense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I don't understand the previous history well enough to really comment, but World War Two is essentially the Soviet and German war. Mm. You know, all of the stuff that the Allies are doing is something like 20% of the German war effort. The actual war is on the Eastern Front with the Russians. No, totally. Uh, and, you know, if you think of that as being, you know, the Russians and the Germans have an enormous war, and we help a little bit on the edges, and then we wind up in a position where we might have to face the Russians and this results in the whole nuclear thing. Mm. the entire period makes a lot more sense. Mm. You know, if you understand, you know, if you think of America as being an enormous superpower that went out there and defeated Hitler, you get a completely misleading model of why the Cold War looked the way that it looked. 
the Cold War looked that way because they'd watched what the Russians did to Hitler and they were afraid they were going to do it to the rest of Europe and then America. Mm. The Russians were terrified. Yeah. Um. Um. Yeah, welcome to your ideological shock and awe, shock and awe shipment. Oh yeah, no, I've, I'm over most of this. All over most of this. Um, <laughs> Get that. Um, if you ever want a real, uh, a real sort of detailed perspective on this stuff with you know a much greater degree of intellectual sharpness than I have for it, the guy I talked to is Ian Welsh, by the way. He is an amazing thinker on these kind of political issues, and he could take apart with a fine tooth comb where the Democratic Party lost its soul after nine eleven and how we wound up with two Republican parties. I mean, he could tell you, like, day by day who made the political decisions that put us in this position, and he's also got a pretty good plan for fixing it. So he's he's really worth talking to. Okay, cool. Thank you. I Welsh on Twitter. I Welsh. Okay. I'm furiously making so, notes. So, we've done a bunch of carpet bombing. Uh, what should we talk about next? Well, I was going to steer us towards Ethereum, and since you've... Uh, you know, explicitly said, what the hell are we going to talk about? Let's talk about that. Ah, sure. Right, so... And bear in mind that the audience is technically unsavvy. Hmm. Okay. So, 2014, late 2014, I've run out of money. I've done 15 years of environmental and political activism trying to lay out a path towards, you know, a kind of just world peace. And... Even though it spent an awful lot of time working with governments, particularly with militaries, to help upgrade their world models to deal with resource scarcity properly, I'm just not making any money. So I finally take myself off duty after I see a play of called Cosmic Trigger, mm-hmm. produced by Daisy Campbell, which mm-hmm. is basically the life story of Robert Anton Wilson. And I'd read a lot of Wilson's work, and I came very close to giving him his last rights in Santa Cruz. People kept trying to get me over to the house uh, to basically, you know, put my Swami hat on and, you know, give him a proper Hindu farewell to the world. Um, But he was dead before we could get through the bureaucracy. So I've always had a sense of an incomplete transaction with Bob. And I like to think that what happened was kind of uh, Bob's farewell message. Maybe he's even sticking around. So I go and see this play and what happens is one of Robert Anton Wilson's kids dies because... Robert Anton Wilson is putting all of his energy into trying to write books to change people's consciousness and change the world, and he doesn't have enough money for his kids not to have jobs, and his daughter is working in some dangerous job, mm. you know, like running a convenience store in some terrible, totally shit neighborhood, and one of her customers kills her. Mm. And at that point, it's like, you couldn't keep your family alive because you had no money to protect them. Oh, this doesn't work. I am not doing this. Because if Robert Anton Wilson couldn't make it work, there's no way that I'm going to be able to make it work. And at that point, it's like, right, I need to go back into capitalism and I need to emerge with a sufficiently large pyramid of money that I can continue to do my wizardly work from a nice, safe, secure tower rather than being out there in the middle of the battlefield without any pants, which is basically how I had been living. Mm -hmm. So it was time to go and get a job. And right around that time, I kept hearing this smart contract, smart contract, smart contract. I'd ignored Bitcoin because I knew from the 1990s, from eGold, that currency alone didn't really buy you anything. It was not the transformative tool that people thought it would be. 
And you can see that with Bitcoin, it is not producing the transformation people had hoped for. You need something more sophisticated, and I always thought smart contracts were that something. So I started hanging out in Ethereum space, and they were very, very, very hungry for talent. They hired me, and basically I spent a year teaching people how Ethereum works, how it's going to change the world, and putting together some hopefully extremely interesting deals which will mature in the next six months or so and will change the entire perception of that space. I suppose I should, exp I suppose I should explain what it is to you, shouldn't I? Yes. <laughs> okay, so... Nickel history of Ethereum. Uh, 1970s, the world is dominated by databases, one database per organization, which is to say one computer per organization. 1990s, the world is one computer per person, and it's dominated by networking those computers together to form the internet. Uh, 2010s, it is many, many, many computers per person, and we don't have good ways of getting those computers to work together within our lives, other than the cloud, or with other people other than the cloud or messaging services. So, you know, if you think the world is basically dominated right now by Slack and Google Docs, that's more or less what civilization runs on. Mm -hmm. So Ethereum and the blockchain are an attempt to combine these three ages of technology into a single system. So all the computers are networked together, they synchronize a shared database, and when you send a message, it's entered into the database and it's visible to the entire world, the same way that a tweet is visible to the entire world if your account isn't protected. So if you think of it as being like a global permanent Twitter, then what happens is that we find a way of allocating currency to people in the system, and your tweet simply carries the money to somebody, because when you say that you're giving them the money, that is the act of giving them the money. So Bitcoin is essentially a performative speech act for value transfer. And what makes it a performative speech act is that you've got the permanent record of what everybody said. Uh, the Ethereum guys then come along and look at that and say, this is pretty good, but we've had five or ten years of study to figure out that we could do a slightly better job on the underlying technology. You know, once you've got an example, it's easy to innovate. Secondly, in all probability, we could build a programming language into that system so that your performative speech act could be an utterance of software rather than an utterance of transaction. And what comes out of that is Ethereum, where basically you speak software directly into the blockchain, and that speech act allows your software to continue to operate. Because you cannot change what you said, people can use the software indefinitely. Does that make sense? Yes. I speak software into a permanent global database. Other people can then run the software. They can send value, money, into the software, and the software will then run on their money and reallocate it to other people or lend it to somebody or give it back to them or spin it on a roulette wheel or execute a call option or whatever else it is you've programmed it to do. My friend Euros Evans calls it the, uh, the Internet of Programmable Money. Right. Yeah, that's the blockchain. The internet of programmable money. And you could make new programmable money to do basically anything that you like. Right. So, for example, uh, if, you, if you want to represent carbon trading, you make a token which is carbon, you can send the token which is carbon around the world, on the other end it arrives as, you know, here's your carbon token. It's got exactly the same kind of scarcity and traceability that you have for Bitcoin or Ether. 
So you want to make a social currency, you make a social currency, you figure out how to issue it, people figure out how to spend it, but the physical tracking of the assets and who's got them gets the same security level that the entire network has, which is enough to store billions of dollars of wealth. Okay. So there's no bank to rob, right? There's no bank to rob. And everyone contains the value, the values in the network. Right. Yes. I mean, right now, the value is in tens of thousands of copies of the damn database. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have to hack. This makes the state redundant, then? Uh, no. I mean, this is what the American libertarians will tell you, but they're idiots. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, I mean, the first thing is, they don't have a definition of the state. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a working definition of the state, how do you know whether you're making it redundant or not? Right. The Westphalian nation state basically, you know, seriously changes the architectural relationship between ordinary political power and the Catholic Church. You know, the whole Holy Roman Emperor thing climbs downhill. Um, but you still have Catholicism making law in a really deep personal sense for more than a billion people. You know, it's more likely to be that the computer revolution globally will do to the state what the state did to Catholicism than it will suddenly cause the state to cease to exist. The state will become legacy, the mainstream structures of your life that run on the state will partially migrate to new platforms, but generally speaking, the state is almost certainly not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. There are a whole bunch of weak states which might wind up largely run by the internet as kind of self-organizing anarchies. You know, I think you could see a lot of Africa go to that model pretty easily because your telecoms provider is a much better state than your state is. But generally speaking, uh, I think that what we're doing is building a new layer and transferring some responsibilities across. I do not expect the shutdown of the nation state anytime soon because human beings archive everything. Mm. We carry along all the historical junk that we possibly can. We hate losing structure. Mm. You know, like, you know, the Fabian Society? You know, like, I'm pretty sure the Fabian Society still exists. It probably hasn't done anything useful in 50 years, maybe 100 years, but I bet that it's still archived somewhere with, like, 12 or 15 people who continue to keep it running. Mm-hmm. And this is basically how human beings operate. So, just to sort of convert on a couple of points, so you, we were talking, you were talking previously about uh, sort of these permanent refugee nations. Would that would the um would they be living in hexiots and using Ethereum to run their whole lives? Or? So I wrote a little science science fiction novel about this called Mother of Hydrogen. I actually started that this morning, but I didn't have time to finish it. Oh, did you? Ah, fun. Um, how far in are you? Um, just my commute to school. Uh, he's just starting the army. Okay, got it, got it. Ah, fair distance said. Um, so, basically, uh, Mother of Hydrogen is a utopian novel. I took what I consider to be the best possible outcome for humanity and stuck it in there. And it's obviously pretty choppy because, you know, it was written for National Novel Writing Month, so I did 60,000 words in six days. Uh, an average speed of seven words a minute for the entire 24-hour period. I mean, it was, it was a fairly intense push. 
and consequently it gets increasingly psychedelic and psychotic towards the end because I've just had less and less and less sleep. Um, I mean, I wasn't literally working 24 hours a day, but I'd get up and I'd, you know, sit down and write 10,000 words. Whoa. Um, I mean, I wasn't literally working 24 hours a day, but I'd get up and I'd, you know, sit down and write 10,000 words. Whoa. So, basically, Mother of Hydrogen lays out a utopian future. It's not a utopian future that assumes that anything impossible happens. It's the best possible path forward that I could see, given the existing tools and technologies relative to the actual problems that we're in. Um, you'll see that there's a particularly high hand in dealing with climate change in it. To get any kind of utopian future, I had to assume that climate change was fixable once you had abundant cheap energy. So, although it's not explained in detail, the model is that they basically pull the carbon back out of the atmosphere using ultra-cheap solar power. One of the things that Mother Hydrogen proposes is that the refugee camp is a prototype city. You have an enormous number of displaced people, you build them housing which is intended to be permanent, you set them up in homes, and then you build them the necessary tooling to start an economy that works. And at this point, if you were going to do that today, you would do it using blockchains, you'd use Bitcoin for international trade, you'd use Ether or targeted currencies for internal trade. And you'd probably use a two-currency model for all the reasons that Bernard Leiter lays out in his book The Future of Money. He basically says you need a hard currency for exchange over long distances, and you'd have a soft currency with much more flexibility about monetary policy for local affairs. So... And the soft company uh, currency typically has demurrage on it, or at least can shoot, can. So, in that instance, you have a set of basic needs that you require for human beings to have reasonable lives. The number one resource that we can give the refugees, which is extremely cheap for us to give them and extremely valuable for them to receive, with a huge multiplier effect, is education. We're not really going to allow refugees to work in the global economy because they begin to compete economically with the people around them. So as far as possible, host countries don't want the refugees working. Obviously, we can't stop them working on the internet. But what we could do is we could have refugee camps which were universities. So think of it as being step one is the refugee camp is a university. Step two is the refugee camp is um, a city. But right now we're kind of on step zero, which is the refugee camp is a warehouse for souls. Mm. inside of that model you then say okay if you're going to be living in this camp for the next 20 years what do you want you want political representation that gives you control over the camp you want some ability to push from you know camp one which is basically you know camp as warehouse to camp two which is campus university to camp three which is essentially city or research park and giving the refugees political rights in an economy Political rights in an economy using software, currently the best technology available is Ethereum. Right. You know, if I had to do it tomorrow morning, I'd do it on Ethereum. So, yeah, okay. You're familiar with BitNation? With what, sorry? BitNation? I'm not. I'm sorry. Oh. Oh, right. BitNation. So, uh, 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 a woman that lived in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and a couple other trouble spots, uh, set up a project called BitNation, which is basically attempting to figure out how to use blockchains uh, to replicate the sort of soft functions of the nation state. So, for example, marriage licenses, uh, birth registries, this kind of stuff. And these services are often pretty hard for refugees to get access to because their host countries don't do things like issue wedding licenses easily. Mm. 
So the idea is that you can basically, you know, use these systems as ways of, um, you know, providing a set of essential services that are extremely useful to you that the state probably should provide but currently doesn't. Mm. Bit nation. Interesting. It's a really good project. Cool. Um, what are you planning next? Um, so for the first, you know, I basically rented a posh penthouse at the far edge of London and have this enormous view over the reservoirs that give the city its water and lots of green trees. And my plan is to basically sit here and lay low for about another year and a half. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to stay inside of market capitalism. I want to continue to work for consensus and build a whole bunch of cool stuff uh, unless I get some kind of spectacularly better offer, which frankly doesn't look that likely. And uh, I'm going to basically just build out all the pedestrian, ordinary building blocks of our technical revolution. You know, I'm giving the Save the World stuff a serious rest right now. I'm very burned out on it after 15 years. And I'm basically just going to stick to the knitting for a year, year and a half, two years. Uh, once I am pretty well rested and regenerated, and with a little bit of luck, I've made enough money to buy myself a house, at least to go for renting to, you know, having a mortgage. Uh, once that material base is rebuilt, I think that basically most of the world will be on fire. Current rates of progress, you know far right wing all over the place, refugee crisis will have worsened significantly, we may have a general public acceptance that global warming is a real thing because it's like 74 Celsius outside, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I should be just about ready to re-enter the fray as, like, right, look, if you're going to fix this, you need a one world government, you're going to need global democracy, at least about this set of issues, you want to use supersidiarity as a principle in the same way that the EU uses subsidiarity, and you should probably make me global dictator because Elon Musk will take Mars and I will take Earth. And that's basically how it is the future. Actually pretty serious about attempting to craft a future for myself as a relatively authoritarian next-generation green political leader. Right. I think that we need a hard, uncompromising form of green, which is numerically based and extremely destructive of people that want to kill the world. Yeah, no. Um... Right? I mean, let's use the full power of the machinery of state to make sure that we all live. This should not be a murderocracy. It's a difficult... Um... I understand what you're saying. Um, and it's like, you know about neo the neo-reactionaries? Yes, I do. I'm so happy to see them. You <laughs> what? I'm, I'm absolutely delighted with the neo-reactionary movement. Okay, that's you've got to elaborate on that. Look, what was the last actual new political movement that you've seen that actually deals with the 21st century as if it was a real place? Oh, yeah. They they want to go back to Rome, right? Uh, Look, they're actually facing reality. Yeah. Right? The libertarians lost for you know lost for decades. Mm. The Republicans, the right, the left, the Labour Party, the Tories, all the rest of that—they're operating on a political map that is usually somewhere between twenty years and a century, or even longer for the left, out of date. The Greens are still stuck in the seventies. 
the new reactionaries are um, uh, right. The new re- well, even Golden Dawn in Greece, they're just Nazi reenactors. If you let them march around with swastikas, they do it. Yeah, they're laughing. Yeah, they're warping exactly. They're not dangerous, as far as I can tell, because they have done no innovation. The new reactionaries have actually innovated. It's a new, modern political movement that faces the reality that we're in and proposes a horrific solution. It, and and that's, that's, the, that's the thing. That's the thing. But I would much rather have a horrific solution that might actually work because it was based on the current facts mm-hmm. than a beautiful dream world which is based on the facts of 50 years ago. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I understand what you're saying. I mean... Right, if you give me a choice... Mm-hmm. Right, of neo-reactionary or democratic socialist in a model that has been proven to cause your society to go bankrupt eventually? Which one am I going to take? If those are my only two choices... Moldberg? Right? If my only choices are a modern bad idea or an old bad idea, which one am I going to try? Right? I mean, people like to laugh at the dear reactionaries, but what the fuck have we done about it? Where is our ideological breakthrough? Where is our real analysis of the modern situation? We've done nothing. Mm. This is why I'm talking to people like you, man. Trying to figure it out. Yeah, right? I mean, if you go back and listen to a talk that I did at the Temporary School of Thought in 2009, Mm. uh, you you know I did this talk, Infrastructure for Anarchists, in 2009? So, the entire new left infatuation with infrastructure comes from me taking all this work that I'd done at Rocky Mountain Institute and injecting it into the squatter movement and the new left in London 2009-2010. Okay. Taught all those guys this model of failed states as an infrastructure problem, showed them the pattern of the European failed states, gave them the transmission from Amory Levins and RMI in the form of this talk called Infrastructure for Anarchists. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a key text. And as the ripple goes out, the infrastructure is kind of where it's at and here's a new way of seeing the world gradually it turns into political opinion, academia, and so on. Cool. So, new reactionaries. The critical thing with this is that they are literally the only modern political movement. They're the only people that have looked at the situation from first principles and come up with a new perspective and a new set of policies relative to it. And this is what makes them terrifying, because everybody else is sitting around with their hands in their pockets saying, these are very bad people, don't talk to them. But the new reactionaries will talk about the modern world rather than trying to drag some ancient, broken political ideology along for the right. Yeah, they talk about it being the past and monarchy and all the rest of this stuff, but fundamentally what they're talking about is corporate rule of earth and sod the nation-state and sod the church. Mm. And, you know, these are the guys that we have to beat. You've got to figure out what an egalitarian solution is on the modern political map. And to get to an egalitarian solution on the modern political map, you must destroy Marx. You must completely destroy him. When somebody opens their mouth and says something that sounds like Marxism, you slap them. No, murder states. Fuck you. Yeah. That's, uh... Right? Yeah, for sure, man. I'm, I'm anti-murder state. the same way that we do. In the same way that we do when somebody opens their mouth and talks fascism. Mm. Actually, you know, I've been thinking maybe this is the fault of the Jews and Hitler was right. You punch them in the chops. Somebody says the same thing and it sounds like Stalinism. People give them room to breathe. Fuck no. Mm. Mm. No. Yeah, I'm not... Right, anti-fascism. 
right, anti-fascism and anti-communism are the same. There is no difference. Mm-hmm. Oppose the mass murder ideologies at all costs. No fascism, no communism. Anybody that sounds fascist or communism, kick them in the nuts until they stop. Yeah, I'm for that. Um, right? That's in, yeah. I hadn't I hadn't actually tied the Greens to the communists in my head, but uh, I, I see where you're getting at. No, I mean the Greens have the same problem as the communists. It's never really been tried, so it hasn't. We haven't seen its failings wrought on a large scale. But the bottom line is the Greens have not shipped a future that is the future. There is no sense in which the Greens have actually produced a future world model that is remotely realistic on current technology or current society. Mm. They will not deal with the fact that the most green human beings are packed into megacities living in extremely tight proximity to each other. Mm. Mm. I don't know where New Yorkers are in terms of global environmental consumption, but they're by far the greenest Americans. Mm. Yeah, no, that's... And, you know, the bottom line is we're continually betrayed by our emotions. Our emotions tell us that it's green and natural to live in the wilderness. No, it's hugely resource intense. Our emotions tell us that, you know, we should have a single society in which everything is shared fairly. Turns out when you try and build it, the people murder each other in huge numbers. Mm. You know, we've tried the experiment. It doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? I don't know, but whatever, for whatever reason, every time we run the experiment, people die in the tens of millions. So we can't do it. Okay, well, what are we going to do? I don't know. Next thing that seems worth a try is basic income. Maybe we try that as an experiment. Well, that's the Scandinavians are sort of latching onto that, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a cheaper way of running a welfare state, but it also provides an enormous amount of freedom because it stops your benefits being means-tested. Which means if you want to take two years off to write a book, you rent a tiny apartment in the middle of nowhere, live as cheaply as you can, and actually go off and produce something. So I think that basic income societies might outcompete capitalist societies because they actually increase the amount of capital that's going into taking risks. If you think of basic income as being risk capital for a lot of young people, it might finance them doing research and development work on their own ideas that would otherwise be unfundable inside of a sort of venture capital model. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. I think um, actually New Zealand are pretty into it as well, which is yeah, my doorstep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're yeah. tiny. These are tiny nations. But if it works for tiny nations, I mean, you know, the, the thesis that I'm making is that basic income might make you into a more economically productive society because it increases your research budget. Mm. You know, Y Combinator in the States is basically basic income for entrepreneurs to get their little companies off the ground and to get the software written. Here's enough money for three people to share an apartment, work around the clock, eat cheap Chinese carryout food, and do you know prototyping of new you know fundamentally interesting new ideas, right? That's basically the Y Combinator offer. So, so you know you could basically do Y Combinator style startups on your basic income grants. You could have a bunch of, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 people working together in something that will eventually become a world-changing company, all living as cheaply as they can, you know, sharing their resources and building new technology. Same thing for artistic production. You you sit down, you write the novel on basic income, and then the thing sells half a million copies. 
I think there's a real possibility that basic income will be an enormous in enabler of people investing in new ideas. So it might turn out to be a huge innovation accelerator, at which point it would make sense from both an egalitarian and from a competitive perspective, which is really the kind of magic sweet spot for new policy. Hmm. No, definitely. Right. Both egalitarian and competitive is, you know, that's what you really want. Mm. And if you could figure out a way of making things which are both egalitarian and competitive happen, uh, then I think that you get a better world that can actually outcompete the old crap that we're doing at the moment. Yeah. For sure. Um, that's a good positive note to end on, maybe. Unless there's anything else you wanted to add. Yeah. Fabulous. Um, nah, I can't think of anything. I mean, you know, oh, two more, two more little things. So, one thing is the enormous distorting, corrupting power of money. Yeah. You know? Um, I've lived basically broke for most of the previous 15 years until 2004. Uh, sorry, 2014. You know, uh, even before that, I was, you know, pretty economically precarious because I was putting all my time and energy into things like meditation rather than work. Um, for the first time in my life, I'm on a stable middle class income by no means as well paid as most people in the tech industry are, but certainly more than enough to be getting on with. Uh, plus I made some investments in Ethereum early on, which have paid off quite nicely, so I've got a little bit of a buffer behind me. And the speed with which that has changed, for example, my perception of homeless people on the streets of London is enormous. You know, my perception of homeless people used to be that these people are basically just like me if this next invoice doesn't get paid on time. So I felt myself to be quite close to them. There was a certain amount of kinship. They now begin to look increasingly alienated, alien and scary now because I'm further from them. You know, when somebody asks me for money, it's no longer being asked for money by a close peer. It's being asked for money by somebody that is in a fundamentally different position. Like, ooh. Uh, and I think that partly, you know, that is just an unconscious human process. And it's something that it's quite hard to fight against, even for me. I mean, I've done an awful lot of work on this stuff. Even for me, there is still a tendency towards that corruption. So I don't know how the world looks when you're a billionaire, but I suspect that even with the best will in the world, simply having that much money may distort your perception to the point where you start acting in genuinely strange ways. And it may not be something they have any conscious control over. And I think that's a really interesting line of research in terms of figuring out how to manage relationships between the poor and the rich. If we think of the rich as having good intentions but distorted world models because of the money, maybe we can find a better way of negotiating with them about planetary resources. That's one thing. Um, the other thing is, you know, the slow decline in the quality of intellectual discourse because of the kind of dogpile effects that you get on social media. I don't think it's the shortness of Twitter that causes the discourse to get broken. Uh, I think what causes the discourse to get broken is the tendency for people to think that the number of retweets equals the worth of the idea. Mm -hmm. So the idea that, you know, tight feedback loops that immediately reward us for saying things that people like or saying things that people think are clever might be inherently corrupting, I think is also quite interesting. And again, this is something I'm noticing because I'm now at, a, at something like 11,000 followers on Twitter. And it's getting to the point where I get up in the morning and there's just an enormous sea of retweets. And, you know, there's that sense of like, oh, I must be saying interesting things. It's like, no, actually, this is just, you know, it's just a, an effect. 
you do something that people are interested in that they think will cause them to be able to make money, they pay more attention, life appears to improve. And noting that all of that stuff is fundamentally synthetic, yeah. imagine what it's like for celebrities and politicians and billionaires. Yeah. It must be almost impossible for these people to keep their shit together. And I think that we see the evidence that it's actually impossible for them to keep their shit together everywhere we look. How's that for an end point? That's, um... I, I, do you follow Interdome? Do you know Interdome, Adam Rothstein? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. He made this joke poster called, which says never tweet on it. Ha, <laughs> nice. I have it above my laptop. <laughs> oh, that's cool. <laughs> that's my little, that's my little never mind. Tweet. Not even once. Yeah. So obviously I'll post this on Twitter. Um, thank you so much for taking the time, mate. You're very welcome. Really interested in talking with you. Yes. Um, I'm going to have to read all these books and then get back to you and we'll do this all over again. <laughs> uh, the other thing to read is a book called um, Pritikin's Testament. Okay. Yep, yep. Pritikin's Testament. Originally titled under the title Christ Was an Ad Man. Oh, okay. Uh, and it's a kind of parody a book from the 1960s uh, basically suggesting that Jesus was an advertising executive. And it's a really, really insightful book about human communications and about how the human mind works, and I highly recommend it to anybody that wants to do political communications. Okay, fantastic. You know, what Prick, it's really good, right? What Prickin basically says is, you know, you can't lie to smart people, and you really want smart people to be your customers. So if you're dealing with smart people, all you can do is you can offer them the facts that they need to make a decision and you could be entertaining. And if you're entertaining and you offer people the facts that they need to make a decision, then they will make a decision and they'll probably make it on the basis of the facts that you give them. So if you lie to them, they'll make a decision that they don't like and then they'll hate you and they'll hate your product and they'll talk about it. You'd rather have them not buy it than buy it and not like it. And that's sort of an approach where you fit, sit firmly inside of realities, you understand it, and you just call the shots as you see them in a way that is generally genial and amusing. Seems to be a really effective way of getting messages heard in this world without producing viral trash. Mm. You know, I want you to decide to abandon the old political ideologies completely and to come up with an alternative to the neo-reactionary movement that faces the facts that they have faced but comes to an egalitarian rather than an elitist solution. Definitely. That's the political project, right? Definitely. Definitely, mate. Yeah, for sure. Go forth and conquer. All right. Thank you so much again. Lovely talking to you, man. All right. <laughs> really good. Take care. See you soon. Okay, bye. And now... A closing comment from one of our most regular listeners and supporters. Shiva, speak. Speak. <coughs> and what do you think of the neo-reactionary Shiva? Speak. <coughs> and how we get... Oh! And in conclusion, 